This is Who We Are, a podcast by Ben & Jerry's and produced by Vox Creative. I'm Carvel Wallace. In 2011, Jeffrey Robinson's life changed. Permanently. He was a criminal defense lawyer in Seattle, Washington. Four years later, he would become the deputy legal director of the ACLU. Robinson, who was black, had been working on civil rights cases, making sure that his black clients were treated fairly under the law. He was no stranger to the myriad ways racism showed up daily in the lives of black folks. But more than that, his knowledge was personal. Robinson had grown up in Memphis, Tennessee during the 1960s and 70s in the shadow of the civil rights movement. He had seen firsthand the legacy of segregation and slavery. He knew everything there was to know about being black in America. Or so he thought. Things changed when Jeffrey's sister-in-law died, leaving behind a 13-year-old nephew, Matthew. Jeffrey became Matthew's guardian and the teenager came from Queens to live with him in Seattle. Suddenly, for Jeffrey, the world looked very different. You live in Seattle. Here's this kid from New York that, especially at that age of 13, you must have thought a lot about what it meant for him to be a 13-year-old black man slash boy slash man, depending on how people treat him and see him in the world. What things did you feel like you had to impart to him in order to keep him safe? Because he's a young black man, which is a gift, right? He has this culture, this yes. this energy, this like this place where he comes from. And it's also a gift that can get you killed in our society. Well, as you were talking about that, I was thinking of uh, a photograph of Matt from his eighth grade graduation that many people have seen. And some people have said to me, gosh, he looks like he's about 18 or 19. He looks really angry. And he's 13 years old. His mother has just died. He knows he's about to move to Seattle and leave everything he knows. And when I look at that picture, what I see is a kid going, what the hell is about to happen to me? And as I started talking to Matthew As you said, he was 13, he was gonna be a ninth grader, going into high school, going to parties, being in circumstances where I wouldn't be there and the police could show up. Mm. And the conversations that I started to have with him were mirroring the things that my father said to me. And I always said to myself, you know, I would never say some of the things my father said to me if I had a son. And I got surprised because as we were talking about this topic, about how to survive as a young black man in America, I found myself almost quoting my father. When he was suddenly entrusted with a son to look out for, Robinson found himself drawing from the past in order to make sense of the present. Growing up, he had thought, maybe even hoped, that the things his father passed on to him in the 60s and 70s, things his father himself had learned in the 30s and 40s, would no longer be needed in the 2000s. But to his surprise, and perhaps dismay, they were. 
history was still present in Jeffrey's living room with his child. Despite all the marches and advancements, despite the civil rights movement, despite Jeffrey's own educational and personal achievements, when he was confronted with the simple reality of preparing a black child to be safe in the world, he found that at the very core of it, not much had changed since when he was a kid or when his father was a kid. The dismal and violent past of America's racism had not been overcome or escaped or even substantially improved. It was still right there, sitting in his living room between him and his child. The past had become the present. Jeffrey Robinson needed to know why and how. And he also needed you to know. If I asked you what white supremacy looks like, clan hoods and Confederate statues are easy things to point to. But those images, that iconography doesn't begin to tell the whole story or even a significant portion of it. So much more frequently, White supremacy looks like laws, statutes, traditions, and regulations. It's not just what's done in the night, but what's written in offices, courtrooms, and the chambers of government every day. White supremacy was not only men on horseback. It was something enshrined in ink, in law, in very specific ways. For example, in 1662, a Virginia law declared that a child born to an enslaved mother was automatically a slave, no matter who the father was. Or in 1696, a law in South Carolina excused any white person who caused the death of a slave while carrying out a punishment. In other words, it didn't matter if the enslaved person died. In the eyes of the law, no crime had been committed. These were the laws of the settler colonies that would become the United States of America. And the spirit of those laws has never really left us. And if America is a country of laws, and the laws themselves are vehicles of white supremacy, then doesn't that mean that America is white supremacy? Because who were these laws written by? Who were they written for? And how can we know where we're headed or understand exactly where we are without understanding our past? Most of the laws, statutes, charters, decrees, regulations, and rulings that calcified white supremacy into the American landscape are not things that I learned about in school. And the same is probably true for you. And that's what led Jeffrey Robinson to launch the Who We Are Project, which inspired this podcast. Consider this a correction to an incomplete education. We'll walk through the history of racism in this country, uncover the white supremacy that is foundational in American law, not an accident, not an unfortunate side effect, but in many cases, the very purpose. And we'll look at ways to turn that knowledge into action. For Jeffrey, the journey began when he found himself repeating his father's words. My father was very, very specific. 
And he was a strict disciplinarian. So, you know, doing the right thing in, in his face was really important. And I remember my younger brother got arrested once and my father found out about it and he came into the house. My father was extremely angry at him. The first thing he said to him, and his jaw is going and I can hear it, you know, so I'm like, oh shit, this is not mm -hmm. gonna be good. Mm -hmm. The first thing he says to him in the softest voice I could imagine, did they do anything to you? And my brother said, no. And then my father was, you know, pissed off at him. And then we went and had that. But his first question, did they do anything to you? My father was a high school principal. When he retired, he was the foreperson of the Shelby County Grand Jury for decades. He was a person who believed in the country. He believed in the legal system. He wanted to do things the right way. But he told me very specifically, you cannot be alone with a white girl on the streets of Memphis in a car. Don't do it. If the police stop you in a car, Put your hands on the steering wheel and don't move them unless you ask for permission and get it. An officer is to be referred to as sir and nothing else. And he would say, there are places I don't want you to go. And here they are. And I understood, I was listening because I understood what he was talking about. I understood that people went missing and never got found again. I understood that kids got shot. Few people remember, but the week before King was assassinated, there was a 15-year-old in Memphis named Larry Payne who just got frickin' executed by the police. And my father was just keenly aware that any of that could happen at any moment. And he made me aware that any of that could happen at any moment and that I had to behave accordingly. What are the things that you found yourself saying to your son that you hope he doesn't have to say to his kids if he has them? I think it was unfortunately the same things that I was saying that my father said to me. He went to a high school that was mostly white. Mm. I never said to him, don't be seen with a white girl. But I will tell you, I would get concerned at some events when I saw the reaction of different parents and it would make me both angry and sad that 50 years after I'm a teenager, this is still, this is still what America is like. Hmm. So you grew up in that America where you knew what some of these unwritten laws were but then when Matthew came to stay with you, you realized how many of the unwritten laws you didn't know. I didn't read about the civil rights movement in a book. I was born in Memphis, Tennessee in 1956. My older brother and I integrated a Catholic school in Memphis in 1963. The civil rights movement was something we were living. And yet 
all of this information that I had never heard before was coming at me and coming at me really fast. As I started reading this information and discovering it, there were several reactions I had. I was angry at myself. I thought that I was ignorant. And what I finally understood is that I didn't know these things because I hadn't been taught them. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, why wasn't I taught them? Because this information, it may be hidden, but it's hiding in plain sight. Every state that was a colony before America was formed has a historical society. And you can go to that historical society and you can see the laws they enacted to maintain and develop the institution of slavery. What does that mean for us today? How might that information change what we're talking about today and how we're talking about it? We didn't get here by accident. We got here because America was formed on a pillar of white supremacy. It had the chance to go in a different direction when we came together and developed the Constitution, but we put the principles of white supremacy directly into the Constitution and named them very clearly. So you can get taught slavery existed from 1619 to 1865. What you don't get taught is those first 20 and odd people that landed in Virginia, it took 169 years, and 20 and odd people had become about 700,000. You don't hear that there were slave breeding farms in the South. You don't hear that Virginia's number one export was not tobacco, it was human flesh. And so when you start hearing these details, all of a sudden, oh yeah, there were slaves and they picked cotton and that was kind of unfair and then it ended. You know, that's America's view, and that's not what it was. And then we get into the 19th century, where we're talking about separate but equal being not just the tradition of America, but the law of the land as written by the Supreme Court. What our history demonstrates is that the American government and state and local governments have pursued racist policies, some without any question intentionally, and some maybe out of complete neglect, but policies that explain why we got to where we are in 2020. I believe that the moment we are in is a significant one in my lifetime. I believe that the death of George Floyd has presented America with what may be our last and best chance. And what I mean by that is, in order to undo 400 years of a system that was designed either deliberately or by indifference to create the society that we're in right now, in order to undo that, it is gonna take huge steps. We are not gonna be able to nibble around the edges anymore. Matthew was 13 when he came to live with me. He's 23 now. I don't have 50 years for him. So it's got to be something revolutionary. A quick note. 
Jeff and I recorded this portion of the interview during the protests in response to the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. But as it always happens in these cases, you can't even write and record the content fast enough to include all the names. Even as I write this, protests are now underway in Kenosha, Wisconsin, following the shooting of Jacob Blake seven times in the back by Kenosha police. Who knows what names will be hashtags by the time you hear this? The predictability of this violence and the speed and frequency of this death, that is not happening because of the moment we are in. That is happening because of everything this country has built and sustained before this moment we are in. That is happening because of what this country is and always has been. You probably already know that the first slave ship landed in the colonies that would become America in 1619. But you could argue that truly American slavery began in 1637 in Boston with the launch of a single ship. That ship, named the Desire, was the first slave ship built on what would become American soil. Two years later, Massachusetts would pass a law inspired by the Bible stating that any Christian can enslave anyone who is a, quote, stranger. And by stranger, they meant black and Native American people. In fact, the first human beings chained on the desire were Pequot Indians, who were sold into slavery in the West Indies before the ship picked up and returned enslaved Africans to Boston. Today, the Poet Laureate of Boston is African-American, West African, Black, and queer. Portia Olayiwala is everything this country has never learned to see clearly. And her poem about that ship, about America, is called, I cannot wade through the past without waking the dead. I cannot weigh wailing, summoning the history as the present of this country is homing the haunting, honing the howls, the clang of cuffs, calling chains a lineage. The power of the tongue is the difference between the new world and the old. A savage and savagery, a colonist and killer. Manifest destiny is the law of attraction, is conjuring under a different guise. Language is a spell, wish and curse. Declare independence and the war ensues. Declare the land your country and the soil gashes crimson. Declare a human as slave and no one asks how bright the color clipping her universe is. History is a complex wordsmith. The first slave ships forged in this country were named Desire, Prosperity, Fortune, and Hope. Desire was built on a summer lawn in Salem and set sail in 1637. The ship, a vessel, a belly, a black hole sold indigenous folks to the Caribbean in exchange for Africans to slave the colonies. A body for a body, a life for a lie, cargo to carcass, desire. From the Latin desidero, meaning to wish to obtain, to long for, to lust after what one loathes. Learn 
One man can claim desire and conquer all another man desires. One can lust after another once, and the thirst is forever in drought. America, namesaked after a conqueror, calls a slave ship hope, and it becomes a blueprint for the future calls a boat a fortune and all aboard become possessed possessions history has a way of repeating or history itself is repeating or history is a reaping ghost gunshot locking us in the open field of an eye the bodies police to pavement the ballot exchange for bullet plantation for prison death for life lie and lingo what you damn damns you the conquer america labels us a nigger and we shape it endearing names us a ghetto and we craft a culture labels us your desire and we say from the latin phrase deciduous meaning from the stars as in emerging from the black hole of a ship's bows as in them folks came from a dark galaxy as in them folks a heavenly body Celestial beams shafted, shackled constellations night skying the ground. History is definitely one of my muses. Really diving into history, like looking at it straight on, you know, not shying away. It is zooming in. And I think for me, what that means is looking directly into the truth, into the lens of the truth. And I think we have to understand to get as close to the truth as possible. It is more than one narrative, right? It is more than one story and specifically more than the main story. I cannot unthink history, the future and the present as an entanglement. I think about Sankofa, right? Go back and get it, right? In order to move forward, we need to go back. And we forget that the first slave ship was built in those places we also call freedom. You know, those things are inherently tied. That is that ghost. You know, as a Black person who writes about predominantly African-American history, African queer theory, etc., it is sometimes heavy to do the kind of work, you know, it was very heavy to read about it, to do the research around the ships um, and to understand and comprehend what they think of the black body. And I think because I love history so much, I really had to infuse it with Afrofuturism because it would just be too sad, you know, and sometimes I just want to rewrite things or reimagine these things and say, yes, it was this terrible, terrible thing, but my God, look at me. Look at me living. There is a symbol that comes from the Akan people of Ghana. The symbol is that of a bird looking back over its shoulder. It is called a senkofa, and the word roughly translates to, it is important to retrieve what's left behind. Go back and get it. This season, on this show, we will retrieve what has been left behind. Jeff and I will dive deep into the way this country wrote itself into being and what's hiding in plain sight. We'll look at police violence, maternal mortality, the right to the ballot, and the continuously reinforced wealth gap. We'll reckon with this country's ugly past and ask the question, 
What would it take to imagine a better future? The past is never dead. It's not even past. It's present. It's now. Dr. Martin Luther King said that we are not makers of history, but rather we are made by it. And if that's true, then what has history made of you? What has history made of me? What has history made of this moment that we share right now, today, in this country, out your window, on your screens? Do you understand everything you need to understand to see a way forward? Because I don't think I do. But what I do know is that Jeffrey is right. We have been here before. And if we don't get it right this time, we may never have another opportunity. Like a spiral, like history, the Sankofa reaches back to bring the past into the present. We're going to look at where we came from. We're going to relearn what America has tried to forget. And in shining a light on the past, we will see the present clearly. This is who we are. Our production team at Cosmic Standard includes our senior editor, Cher Vincent, our senior producer, Ajwa Jimma Brimpong. Our managing producer is Elise Bergerson. Our associate producer and researcher is Najib Amini. Our technical director is Jacob Winnick. Our showrunner is Eliza Smith. And our theme music is by Marcus Hunt. From Vox Creative, we have director of creative strategy, Amber Davis, senior creative producer, Anu Subramanian, and from the Who We Are Project, we have executive producer Jeffrey Robinson. I'm Carvel Wallace. Thank you for listening. 